But if you will open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 7, put a finger there and then turn to Psalm 110. Put a finger there and turn to Genesis 14. Put a finger there. (laughs) Jesus said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Matthew 22 verses 42 through 46. Jesus quoted from David one of the most pivotal prophetic passages in all of the Bible. Psalm 110. And we're going to begin there. So make your way to Psalm 110. Jesus quoted it to challenge the thinking of the Pharisees, to get them, I think, a little off balance because he was indicating that Messiah would not only precede, but he would exceed David. As great as David was, that glorious king of Israel, that man after God's own heart, Israel's shepherd king, He would not come to the level of Messiah. And Jesus is getting this point across, discussing and and implying the superiority and the glory of Messiah Himself. Jesus Christ is the same. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 13.8 He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the root and the descendant of David. He said, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star, Revelation 22, 16. And 3,000 years ago, a thousand years before the pastor wrote the letter to the Hebrews, David, in a, a wonderful, mysterious flash of prophecy, overheard a conversation. Psalm 110 is one of my absolute favorite psalms because of that reality. It's just David recounting what he heard, a conversation between God and God. Between literally Yahweh and Adonai. Between Yahweh and Yeshua, the Father and the Son. And the Father is addressing the Son and speaking to the Son. And in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Note that, he says, rule. Key word. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest, second key word. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. We cannot overstate the value of this psalm. 
It is literally a hinge point. Not only in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, but a hinge point of our very faith. It's the big picture, you could say, of the Hebrew scripture. And to land here and to hear what David writes is, is absolutely stunning. Even now, even being able to look back and understanding the full implications of what was meant. To hear David writing it at the time, it would have just been this huge, overwhelming, difficult to understand thing because it speaks of a royal priesthood. A ruling priesthood. Which is unusual. In fact, was not a thing in Israel. These two words should not be in the same sentence for a good Jew, royal and priesthood. And yet it's a key concept in the Hebrew sermon that we're going to get back to in a few minutes. Now the pastor has already referred to this priesthood uh, three different times in the letter. And you need to understand that his Judeo-Christian recipients... Those receiving this letter and hearing this sermon and pouring over it with the first mention of Jesus as a high priest would have been perhaps a bit confused. With the second mention of Jesus as a high priest, they might have been squirming a little bit. With the third mention of Jesus as the high priest, clearly this guy is going somewhere with this. He's going to continue talking about this. you got to explain what you're saying, Pastor. Because you're delving into an area that is uncomfortable for us. We didn't have ruling priests. So you could not have a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. It doesn't work that way. You're either a king or you're a priest. But you are most certainly not both at the same time. And God made that absolutely clear, as we will see. But the pastor is one step ahead of him. He's already done his homework. He knows the questions are going to come. And so in chapter 5, note this, verse 1, he says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself, and no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. Okay, good. That sounds normal. (laughs) That sounds like the high priesthood, the Levitical priesthood that we're familiar with, but he doesn't stop there. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. Head scratching. Just as he says also in another passage, well, he said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, verse 6, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Oh, he's quoting that psalm. That mysterious psalm that deals with that mysterious monarch. What does this have to do really with anything? What we know about the monarch, Genesis 14, four verses. What we hear repeated in the psalm, one verse. A total of five verses in all of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he's drawing off of that. Why? What is this all about? Messiah the king, we like the idea. Messiah the priest, how? The lawful priesthood was, first of all, of the tribe of Levi. At this point, they already understood that Jesus as Messiah was of the tribe of Judah. 
So even by tribe, he could not lawfully be a priest, and yet he's being referred to as a priest, and now as a priest according to the order of this Melchizedek, who isn't even Jewish. Well, I guess he could be Jewish. I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. But the hint in Psalm 110 of Messiah holding both offices, get this, has a confirming witness in the Hebrew Scriptures. One other place. And you might remember that if, if you want a matter confirmed, the Bible says you need two or three witnesses. Well, there are two. Two to this ruling priest. Psalm 110 and Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That is king and priest. And so we have two places in the Hebrew scriptures that declare the Messiah would be both king and priest. The witness is there. The fact, the matter is confirmed. Now, Bible students remember this priestly order to which Jesus belongs, I said last week, is exclusive. In fact, there's nobody in this order except for he that is called king of righteousness, king of peace, and priest of God most high. Jesus is in a class all by himself here. This royal priesthood that we are about to get into here is not a new hermeneutic hatched by the Hebrew pastor. He's not coming up with a new idea. See, pastors can do that. I don't know if you've picked up on that. But they can get creative. And they can come up with new ways of teaching things that's fun to listen to and tickles the ears, but may or may not actually be truth. This is not a new teaching. The order of Melchizedek and the teaching of Hebrews chapter 7 is not something he cooked up. It is long-standing. It is deeply rooted in the truth of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. The truth of what Jesus did and who Jesus is. It's not a new doctrine. This royal priesthood is pre-law. It's pre-Mosaic. And it is a perpetual order that is eternal both Back and forward. Always has been, always will be. That's the kind of priesthood we're talking about here. And it predates the writer of Hebrews by 2,000 years. You see, 4,000 years ago, Abram met Melchizedek. Are you in uh, Hebrews chapter 7? Keep your finger there and go back to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, let's get the backstory. let's get the understanding here. An 80 plus year old Abram is just coming off of one of the greatest military raids in Israelite or Israeli history. We don't know a whole lot about it save what we're told in Genesis 14, but it's a remarkable military rescue of his, of his nephew Lot and many others who have been taken captive and much spoil and loot came back with, with Abram. But it's just the backstory for the real issue, for the more important engagement, which we pick up in verse 17 of Genesis 14. Then after his return from the defeat of Cheddar Cheese and the kings who were with him. (laughs) I couldn't resist. Cheddar Leomar. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, note this, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. Of all the spoils. Curiously, Abram gave a tithe. 10% of everything that he had just won in this battle to Melchizedek, but he gave nothing to Bera. Who's Bera? King of Sodom. Keep reading. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except that, except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Now I know that goes beyond the story of Melchizedek, but it's pertinent to our study. To understand and to see the contrast between these two men, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. Melchizedek and Bera. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It's two words in the Hebrew put together. Melchizedek. Zedek is righteousness. Melchizedek is king. It's also, he's also the king of Salem. He comes out of Salem. This is the first mention in the Bible of Yerushalayim. Jerusalem. So he's the king of Salem. So his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness, but he's the king of Salem, which means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. By contrast, Bera, the king of Sodom. Bera means son of evil. King of Sodom, Sodom means burning. And rightly so. Let me just ask you a question, and I'm actually going to come back to this, so prepare to be a little uncomfortable. Where does your tithe go? Where does the offering of the first 10% of your income go? Does it go to be offered up to peace or to burning? Does it go to the king of Salem or the king of Sodom? Does it go to Melchizedek or to Bera? And get this, the king of Sodom, he says to Abram, Hey, keep the stuff, just give me the people. You know what the word is in Hebrew for people? Souls. You can almost hear Satan in that. Hey, keep everything you make, all the money you get, all the stuff that you can amass, keep that, just give me your soul. That's all I really want. Melchizedek's different. King of peace. And that really is a contrast worth considering in our culture, peace or burning. (coughs) King of Salem or king of Sodom. The peace of Christ, the plunder of the devil. How do you say no to the seductions of Satan, to the plunder of the enemy? How do you deal with that in this life? Well, Abram gives us two great examples of how to do that. First, he chose to commune with Melchizedek. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. You see the symbols there. They're clear. They're obvious. They're there for a reason. Oh, he brought them out. This really happened. But the fact that it's bread and wine is fascinating to me because they are the symbols of the Lord's table of communion. 
And what we see before he interacts with the king of Sodom, Abram has already interacted with the king of Salem of peace. He has already communed in these, this, this representation of communion, of the Lord's Supper. He's already done this with Melchizedek. He already is prepared now to deal with the king of Sodom. It's a good, a good test. And he gave Melchizedek the first 10% of all the spoils, which is another wise thing to do. I will tell you, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm just a pastor. But I will tell you the first and best thing that you can do financially, whether you're struggling or you got it all together, is give the first fruits, the first 10% of your income, just give it to God. Well, Rick, you're just saying that because perhaps the budget is down. Okay, don't give it here. I wouldn't know. Finance team wouldn't know. Give it to God. If you don't want to give to this local fellowship, that's that's fine. Give it to the Lord. Give it somewhere where you have to just trust the Lord that this 10% is going to His work and not yours. More on that in just a minute. But why did He do that? Why did Abram... I mean, he's just had won this glorious victory. What was it about Melchizedek that caused Abram to tithe to him? And to respond to Him so positively in the way that He does. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. What the pastor does here is beyond brilliant, it's inspired. The Spirit has something to teach us here. And He reveals as much about this Melchizedek by what's left out as by what's kept in. Watch this, verse 1, chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Oh, I see what the Hebrew pastor's doing. He's painting a picture. A picture of Jesus. And at a minimum, we can say Melchizedek foreshadows or prefigures Jesus. Prefigures the Christ, the Messiah. However, and I've shared this before, I personally believe it is much bigger than that. This is not just a foreshadowing. This is what we call a Christophany. That is, this Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is Jesus was Jesus in person showing up in what is a pre-incarnate appearance on planet earth. And I will prove it to you tonight. I shared that in staff meeting this morning. I said, I'm going to prove it tonight. And, and Jeff said, you ought to put that on the website. Pastor Rick is going to prove it to you. Prove it, prove it, prove it. We're going to get there. But I am absolutely convinced that Melchizedek is Jesus himself. Now back in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, we're told, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. 
That is Yahweh Sedek. Not Melchizedek, king of righteousness, but Yahweh Sedek. God, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. And the first thing the pastor says here is, he is, by translation of his name in verse 2, king of righteousness, and then also king of peace. Well, Micah chapter 5 verse 4 says, He will arise and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God, and they will remain because at that time He will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. King of righteousness. King of peace. Man, I need that King. I need in my life to know that something is true. To know that in the storms and in sometimes the wreckage and in the fears and in the difficulties and in the stress that there is a righteousness. That there is an absolute. And He is King of all that is righteous. And He is King of peace because I need that too. To know He is righteousness and peace. And by the way, note this. In fact, I'll give you four principles tonight as we go through this. And this is the first principle. Righteousness precedes Peace. Note the order. He even says this. He was first of all king of righteousness and then king of peace. Because righteousness always precedes real peace. You're not going to find real peace without true righteousness. People pursue peace in so many pointless ways. Pleasure. I'll get peace through pleasure. Through satisfying that urge or that desire. That's where I'll find peace. Or, or through escape. I just gotta get away from it all. And there I'm gonna find peace. Or through compromise. The pressure's just too strong right now. The Lord's a sin. It's too heavy. I'm just gonna give in. I'm just gonna make kind of an appeasement. By the way, whether we're talking about North Korea or spiritual things, appeasement never works. Ever. Especially when you're dealing with evil. People will try and find peace through power if I can just get strong enough, big enough, tough enough, fearful enough. Then I'll have peace. And you can't find it in any of these things. Without righteousness, there is no peace. Because we were made by God. We were made to ultimately be right with God. And we are not right with God. We are not righteous. And therefore, we will not know peace. Charles Spurgeon said, Peace without righteousness is like the smooth surface of the stream before it takes its awful Niagara plunge. Well said. Isaiah 32.17 tells us, The work of righteousness will be peace. And the service of righteousness is quietness and confidence forever. When I'm right with God, then and only then, all is right with my world. But when God and I aren't talking, when there's a silence there, because of my choice, when I am ignoring Him or rejecting Him or rebelling against Him, I will not ever know peace. Paul said in Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the only path to peace is righteousness, the righteousness of God purchased by Jesus, received by faith in Him, and then we have peace. Melchizedek, King of Righteousness and King of Peace. Verse 3 again, listen to this. Without father, without mother, 
without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Let me repeat this. The pastor calls from what we don't know about Melchizedek as much as from what we do know about him. He just appears there in Genesis 14. We know nothing about his genealogy. Nothing about his parents. Who was his mom? Who was his dad? He doesn't have them. At least as far as the scriptures are concerned. When was he born? He wasn't as far as the scriptures are concerned. But when did he die? He didn't. As far as we know, because the scriptures don't tell us. There is silence. And I submit to you it is an intentional silence. He he shows up there in Genesis 14, disappears for a thousand years of obscurity, and then David overhears the Lord pluck that name out of nowhere in this holy conversation about this royal priestly order as he jots it down in Psalm 110, and then you hear nothing else again until the Hebrew writer brings him back up. I love a good mystery. And God knows this about us, and so He's luring us in, in a godly, righteous way. He's drawing us by the mystery of Melchizedek and this royal priestly order. Note this, He is made like the Son of God. That is Melchizedek. What does that mean? To be made like the Son of God. The Greek word means a facsimile, or a visual copy. A similarity, an expression of the original. You know what that means? It means that the Son of God came first. That Jesus must precede this appearance of Melchizedek. Well, Rick, you told us you were going to prove to us that Jesus is Melchizedek. I will. But again, for sake of argument, if we're saying that there's Melchizedek and there's Jesus, Jesus came first. And if, in fact, Jesus is Melchizedek, well, Jesus still came first. He was in the beginning with God. Right? He's always been. So, in essence, he always precedes Melchizedek. He comes first. You don't make a copy of something unless you have the original. And Melchizedek is made like the Son of God. There are the similarities here. He's an expression of, a foreshadowing of, a prefiguring of, or actually, Jesus Himself. But here's what I want you to get out of verse 3. Jesus is the pattern. He's the perfect model. And He is for you and for me too. Can you say, I'm being made like the Son of God? See, that that's the vision for the Christian life. That's the reason you're here tonight. It's not to get information about Melchizedek. You can walk out the door and forget the name and that's okay. You're here tonight because you desire in your heart of hearts to be made like the Son of God. To be fashioned after the pattern of Jesus. To look like Him. To act like Him. To think like Him. To bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is His fruit. To be one of His own. To be seen as belonging to Him. Are you made like the Son of God? Are you seeking to pattern your life after His? We talked about this a little bit this morning. That to pattern your life after His is a spiritual thing. Asking God to do supernaturally in you what you cannot do for yourself. But it's also a very physical thing. I've said before, read the Gospels. Do the Gospels. Live the Gospels. What Jesus got happy about, get happy about. 
What made him angry? Be angry with. What brought him peace? Let that be what brings you peace. Pattern your life after the life you see in the Gospels. And you will be being made after the image of Jesus. Romans 8.29, Paul said, Those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. He is made like the Son of God. Are we? Verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Choicest spoils is literally the top of the heap. So we would say first fruits. This was a first fruits offering. This was the tenth of the very best of the best. Why does Abraham do that? Because principle number two. Did you guys get principle number one? Righteousness precedes peace. Principle number two, the lesser honors the greater. Why did Abraham tithe? Because the lesser honors the greater. This was such an aha moment for me this week. I have always taught that tithing is a matter of faith. I believe it is. Not faith as in proving yourself, but faith as in increasing trust in God. As I tithe, I trust that the only way the rest of the 90% that I'm allowed to keep is going to work is if I trust Him. I go first to Him. I give Him the first 10. Which, by the way, you know what belongs to Him anyway. In fact, the entire 100% of what you make, your gross income is His. He's only loaning it to you. He's allowing you to use it. You didn't work hard for the money. God determined what you were going to get, and you got it. And then He says, oh, and by the way, why don't you give me the first 10% just to remind you where it comes from. And we say, well, I don't know if I can give you 10% of my money. And so I've taught this, and you've heard it perhaps here at the bridge. Not during budget season. But whenever we happen to hit it in our study through the Bible, we talk about tithing as a matter of faith. Man, just trust Him. Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Your Heavenly Father knows you need these things. So we either take Him at His Word or we don't. Tithing is one way to take Him at His Word, to trust Him. But here's the thing. Tithing is more than increasing faith. Tithing is more than an act of faith. My friends, tithing is the lesser honoring the greater. It's what Abraham did. He saw this Melchizedek and recognized him as a greater persona, a greater character, a greater man than he was. And because he was greater, he said, I'm going to give you the first 10% because you will be honored in this. And I, as a lesser person, want to honor you, the greater man. That's tithing. That's what is summed up in the whole thing. It's the lesser honoring or... I wasn't sure if I was going to say this, but I will. Or it's the lesser dishonoring the greater. And that's between you and our greater God. Abraham, by the way, wasn't the only one to honor Melchizedek in this way. In fact, what the Hebrew pastor tells us is the entire Levitical priesthood of Israel did the same thing. When did they do that? Look at verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, 
that is Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one, Abraham, who had the promises. But without any dispute, and here it is, the lesser is now blessed by the greater. So the lesser honors the greater, and the greater blesses the lesser. Verse 8. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, that is in the Levitical priesthood, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Verse 9. And so to speak... Through Abraham, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. It is beautiful reasoning that this Levitical priesthood that always received the tithes of the people actually, previously, through their father Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. About a, I guess about an hour, <coughs> pardon me, about an hour, maybe an hour and a half north of Tel Aviv. On the beautiful shores of the Mediterranean Sea lies the city of Netanya. And it's not usually a stop on our tour because it's a more modern city there in, in Israel. But it's named after a 20th, 20th century Zionist, <coughs> a Jewish American businessman. You might know him as the founder of Macy's. His name is Nathan Strauss. Natan in Hebrew, and so Netanya was named after him because he gave so much in the founding of and in the building of that city. <coughs> his brother is equally well known. His name is Levi Strauss. <laughs> what the pastor is saying, brace yourselves for this, in verse 10, is that when Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was in his genes. It's the the only time, and this is true, the only time in all of Jewish history that the Levites paid the tithe is right here to Melchizedek. They always received the tithe. Those mortal, imperfect priests received it because that was the only way that they could survive. That's how they got their income. That's how I get mine. (laughs) The pattern was set long ago. That God did determine there there are some, what I want you to do is spend 40 plus hours a week doing this. And because you're so pathetic, we'll take care of you. See, that's kind of how I look at it. The Levitical priests paid the tithe. You know, when I read that, and this was years ago, I realized I got a responsibility to tithe. I'm a pastor, and my income, yes, it comes out of the tithes and offerings of the church fellowship. That's how I'm supported. I do this full time. I know that's shocking to some of you. But I realized, and I always struggle with that, where the, where the tithe was concerned. What, I'm supposed to take income and then just turn right around and get 10% of it right back? Who does that? Why? That doesn't make sense to me. And then I read this. And I realized that the Levitical priesthood tithed. Oh, they weren't required to tithe to the temple or to tithe to themselves. But in the genes of Israel, of Abraham, Levi tithed. 
Why are you sitting on this issue of tithing? I understand that some people get all wrapped around the offering box whenever we bring this up. They don't like to hear it. They get uncomfortable. And some people will. I'm not saying you. In fact, I doubt it's you. You're here tonight. You're obviously the upper crust of the fellowship. <laughs> some people, when tithing is mentioned, when offering is brought up, they will, they will explain it away. No, I don't, I don't, I'm not into all that legalistic stuff, they may say. And so they'll diminish its value. They will rationalize other ways of giving. Well, I, I give of my time. I tithe of my energy. I've heard that one. Well, let me just tell you, that's not a biblical tithe. That's your life. And God's not asking you to give 10% of your life. He wants your entire life. He only wants 10% of your income. You get to keep 90 But for your life, you've got to give it all. But people will, will, will explain this away. I won't even say people. I did this for years, and I understand this. Isn't tithing commanded under the law? And I'm not under the law. And therefore, I'm under grace. I don't have to tithe. No, you don't. Tithing's not going to get you into heaven. Tithing is not a salvation issue. It is a faith issue. It is a trust issue. It is a growing in the Lord issue. I would even go so far as it is a made like the Son of God issue. But it's not going to save you. I'll, I'll grant that. Here's what we've got to understand. Tithing, and when I say tithing, I'm not just talking about putting a buck in the box. I'm talking about 10%. Now, if you made $10 for the year and you put a buck in, then you've tithed. When I talk about tithing, understand, what the Bible says, this is not about law at all. There were requirements in Israel that were legal, lawful requirements. In fact, those requirements came up to about 25 to 28% of income, not 10 Tithing is about, get this, honor. It is about the lesser honoring the greater. If you've never thought about it this way before, man, put that in your spirit and think it through. Tithing is the lesser honoring the greater. Abraham preceded the law, by the way, by half a century. So this tithe had nothing to do with the law. The tithe to Melchizedek. And you could say, since it's the lesser honoring the greater, that tithing is more than anything else, more than an act of faith even, tithing is an act of worship. Because in tithing I am worshiping my greater God. Matthew 6.24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In another place, he said to the Pharisees, he said, you know, you, you tithe even down to mint, dill, and cumin. You even tithe your spices, you're so uptight about it. And he says, you know what? You neglect justice and mercy. So what you really need to do is give justice and mercy and forget about the tithe. No, that's not what he said. He said you should do the former without neglecting the latter. So even Jesus confirms the concept, the idea of tithing. The real question though, and we'll leave this thought and I just let you stew in it, think about it, process it. My job here is to not get more in the, in the offering box. My job is to encourage faith and honoring the one who is greater. So the question is, the real question of the tithe is who is greater in your life? Who is the greater one? 
Verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the the people received the law, that is, upon them, upon and through the Levitical priesthood, that's kind of how the law was set up. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? And he's pointing to Jesus now. And not just be designated according to the order of Aaron. Why wasn't Jesus just made a Levitical priest? Why not just make Jesus the high priest? He could come in there and he could kick Annas and Caiaphas off the throne and just take the high priestly rule himself. He could be a Levitical priest. Why not have him of the tribe of Levi? And just be one of those priests. That's the question he's asking. But he answers it, verse 12. He says, For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. In other words, hey, with Jesus, everything's about to change. Everything's going to be different. Everything is going to shift. He's building his whole sermon, remember this, on the supremacy of Christ. Starts off in chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, talking about Jesus as God. And then Jesus more supreme, more superior than, than the angels. And he's going through, and now he's comparing the priesthood of Jesus and saying it is far superior to the priesthood of Levi. The Levitical priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood. This one is far superior. And so, principle number three, the perfect sets aside the imperfect. The perfect sets aside the imperfect. As goes the priesthood, which is now obsolete because now Jesus has come in as the new high priest of a better order, so goes the law because the priesthood and the law are intertwined. You can't separate them out. So if you're going to replace the priest, you've got to replace the law, and he's going to talk about that. It's called the New Covenant, and we'll get there in chapter 8 on Sunday morning. But with Christ and the New Covenant, the perfect sets aside the imperfect. Verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, and from which no one has officiated at the altar. What tribe is that? Judah. So Jesus is of the royal, kingly line. The line of David. The line of Solomon. The line of Josiah. The the kingly line of Judah. That's the one to which He belongs. For it is evident, verse 14, that our Lord was descended from Judah. A tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priests. So let's get back to this. Royal priesthood. Ruling priest, king and priest, it doesn't work in Levitical law. It doesn't work in Torah. In Torah law, God strictly separates politics and religion. You can't have power and faith. They are two separate things. So you had the kingly line through Judah, and you had the priestly line through Levi, and neither the twain shall meet. And God was intentional with this. Two kings tried to to avoid this, tried to actually become priestly. And it did not go well for either one of them. The first one was not of the tribe of Judah. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was the people's choice, not God's choice. His name was Saul. Saul came along and we're told in 1 Samuel 13 that he went up and, and decided it was time for him to offer sacrifices at Gilgal. 
That's where Samuel was offering the priestly sacrifice. Samuel was a prophet and a priest, but not a king. And you could be a king and a prophet like David, but not a priest. Saul goes up there, and in a heady moment, he's looking for Samuel. He can't find him, so he says, I need to offer the sacrifices. Let's do this thing. He offers the sacrifices. 1 Samuel 13, verse 9, or verse 10, As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But He's going to rip it from your hands. Do you realize that is the seminal moment for Saul? That is the moment where God said, His rule is over. When the king decided to make himself a priest by offering up sacrifices, God said, that will not happen. You're done. And he took his spirit from Saul and he put his spirit on David. And everything changed. And from then on, it was the line of Judah. So Saul tried to do it and couldn't get away with it. Can't be a king and a priest. One more guy did this. One more king of Judah. Further down the line, his name was Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. We read about him in 2 Chronicles 26. He did good things. He was faithful to God. But but he was faithful to God and, and a good king for a long time until he started to get a little heady. Older Christians, be careful that we don't follow the pattern of Uzziah. That we're faithful in our younger years, but the older we get, the more cocky we get with our faith and the less we think we really have to apply these things to us. Those of us who think we've already been made like Jesus. Little hint. If you're breathing... You're not like Jesus yet. Okay? But Uzziah comes along. Second Chronicles 26. He enters the temple in a moment of pride. In fact, that's the whole reason he did it. Azariah, the high priest, and the rest of the priests with him are trying to stop him. It's not right that you should do this thing, they say. But he says, get out of my way. And he goes up there to offer burnt offering on the altar of incense he goes to offer. You know what happened? Leprosy broke out all over Uzziah and he stayed a leper for the rest of his life. It ruined him. To try and be a king and a priest. So so can you understand with that understanding how a Jew finding out that Jesus is both king and priest would go, is that okay? Can we do that? No, you can't do that under Levitical law. But under the Melchizedekian priesthood, this different order, oh, we've got a brand new day. Melchizedek, the example of a perfect king and priest. Perfect because we never know anything that he did that was wrong. I should be so blessed to only have four verses about me in Scripture and never mention any of my sin. He's perfect. And the example is one of perfection. And along comes Jesus who alone can blend the offices of priest and of king perfectly. Verse 15, And this is clearer still, he says. If another priest arises, talking about Jesus, according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, that is, we could say, genealogy, but according to the power of an indestructible life. With Jesus, it is not... A genealogical thing. It's not Levi's genes. 
Alright? It is Christ's resurrection that establishes His priesthood. The indestructible life. They tried to kill Him. They couldn't keep Him down. You can't keep a good Savior down. You kill Him, He's coming back. He resurrects. He is ultimately indestructible. That's what makes His priesthood absolutely perfect, whereas the Levitical priesthood, imperfect. These guys kept dying. You know, every time you had a good high priest in there, and his tenure went well, you thought, oh, finally we have peace in the priesthood, because this is a good guy. He died. So you had to get someone else in there. It's kind of like the papal line, if you think about it. You have your good popes, I suppose. And then you've got your not-so-good popes, and then you've got your evil popes, and then you've got your popes who don't have a clue. There are those who say that about Francis. I, I'm not saying that. I don't know the guy. But verse 17, he goes on, he says, It is attested of him, that is Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. And that is the anchor. That's the anchor. Remember Sunday? Chapter 6, verse 19, this anchor we have as an, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's our hope. Melchizedek. Jesus Christ, the perfect order of the perfect priesthood. He is our hope because Jesus isn't going to die. He's not going to be replaced. He's perfect, and He replaces that which is imperfect. Better genes, a better covenant. In verse 20, I'll go back to verse 18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. This is a a, a Jewish pastor, a Jewish Christian saying these things about the law. That it's weak and useless? Why would he say that? Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect. Hey, the law was perfect, but we're not. You can hand me a perfect law, but if I can't keep it, the law itself is useless to me. Because it can't bring me to the point of perfection. All the law can do, Galatians chapter 3, is bring me to Jesus, the one who is perfect. He says the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand... There is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And that's the deal. We draw near to Him, to the perfect covenant, to the perfect high priest, not tied down to the old Levitical priesthood that cannot perfect anybody. Verse 20, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they, going back to the Levitical priesthood, they became priests without an oath, You realize that you didn't get sworn in as a Levitical priest. You got born in. That was it. You're born in the tribe of Levite. You take your place in line. And when your number gets called up, you go down there and you do your priestly service. Or if you're born in the tribe of of the tribe of Levi, but of Aaron in that tribe, then you're in line for the high priesthood. and, And you may perhaps be able to be the high priest someday. But only if you're born that way. They were never sworn in. They were just born in. It was the height of nepotism. You're a Levite, you're a priest. Duh. They became priests without an oath, verse 21, but He, that is Jesus, with an oath through the One who said to Him, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, You are a priest forever. 
Remember we saw this on Sunday? The promise and the oath. And the oath we saw back in Genesis 22 where where God says to Abram, I swear by myself that I'm going to follow through. I swear by myself it will be of the line of Isaac all the way down. I swear by myself to make you a great nation through Isaac. By myself. The oath. But He also said it in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22 so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Man, it's just, again, it's brilliant thinking. It's brilliant theology. It's absolutely inspired. He's showing us, He's finally brought us through this Levitical priesthood. Man, Torah law was perfect, but we couldn't keep it, so it was useless to us. So we come all the way up to, we needed a perfect high priest. Jesus becomes that. But again, He couldn't become that if it was through the tribe of Levi. If Jesus had been born a Levitical priest, He could not be the high priest that He is today. It had to be from outside the tribe of Levi. And I'll explain even more as we go. But Psalm 110, that remarkable seven-verse psalm, is really a swearing-in ceremony of the new high priest. God swearing in Jesus to the Melchizedekian priesthood. And as I said before, no priest was ever sworn in to the Levitical priesthood. They were born in. Your Levi, automatic assignment. Jesus is the only priest who was sworn in. By the way, when did that happen? When was that swearing in ceremony? of Christ, the the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. When did that... Psalm 110, David overheard it, right? David overheard it a thousand years before the Hebrew writer addresses it. So when did it take place? I love this. What? Before the foundation? I would say no. When did he hear this? At the resurrection of Jesus. Now listen to this. This is amazing. David had good hearing. He heard a thousand years ahead. He heard this conversation taking place a thousand years before it happened. That is in terms of of, of earth time. What are you saying, Rick? Listen, Jesus comes in. He lives this perfect life. He's crucified on the cross. He resurrects from the dead three days later. Forty days after that, He ascends to the heavens. And then, at that point, the Father says to the Son, You are the new high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Well, how do we know that? Peter tells us. Acts chapter 2, verse 34. It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. So in the marvel of all this, David hears... The conversation of God the Father to God the Son, I'm swearing you in as the high priest, a conversation that happened after the ascension of Jesus, but David heard it a thousand years earlier. How is that possible? Well, when you're God, 
the answer is very simple. David heard a conversation that took place outside of time. We think in terms of the time bubble. God is not bound by time. When Jesus ascended, He was no longer bound by time either. And so in the presence of the Father, this conversation takes place outside of time, and it punches through time a thousand years earlier, and David heard it, and that's when he wrote it down. Are you with me? Okay, just nod, and if not, just wipe the drool off of your face. Principles. The first principle, righteousness, precedes peace. The second principle, the lesser honors the greater. The third principle, the perfect sets aside the imperfect. And principle number four, and this is where it all comes together. This is huge. The intercessor replaces the interim. The intercessor replaces the interim. Watch this, verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers, or greater numbers, because they were prevented by death from continuing. Every former priest died. Every one of them, without exception. But Jesus, verse 24, on the other hand, because He continues forever, He holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore... He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives. He always lives. He always lives to make intercession for them. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Less, my pastor brother, does not always live to make intercession for you. Sometimes he lives to please his wife. And that's a better ministry. Sometimes He's not available. Sometimes I'm not available. Sometimes we're not available one for the other to intercede right when we need each other the most. He always lives to make intercession. There is never a time when you cry out to Jesus that He says, can you hold on just for a moment? I'll intercede later. That happens to me on Sunday morning at times. I mean, you all know the drill. We, we have our, our ministry time and we, we invite people to come forward to receive Jesus or for prayer or whatever. And we have the song going and people come up and I step down and, and, and we'll pray and people go to different ones. Sometimes you guys go to less more than me. That's okay. I've gotten over it. But, but people will come to me and then the song will stop and I'm in the middle of prayer and it's like, oh no, I've got to be up there now. And I've actually said, I did this last Sunday to a brother. I said, hang, hang on with me. Just stay right here. Let me go deal with them and I'll come back. <laughs> I hope you know when I say stuff like that. I'm just kidding. I really do love y'all. Most of you. But I, I, I had to say to him, hang on a minute. I'll be right back. I hate that. My heart says this is the most important thing. And I think that's what Jesus would say is, you are the most important thing to me right now. Nothing else matters. The difference between me and Jesus is i got to go do something else. But He always lives to make intercession for you. Always. That's wonderful. But, but it's bigger than we realize. Yes, He's the, the model mediator. He's the ideal intercessor. He is the supreme go-between. 
Different than any other priest before Him, but different in two ways. And mark these and we're done tonight. Two ways. Number one, He is inviolable. What? He's inviolable. The word is also translated, He is non-transferable. When it says He holds His priesthood permanently, the word permanently is apar abatos. And that word means unchangeably. Non-transferably, there is no other. He's the only one who can hold this priesthood. By the way, in that is a hint as to why I think Jesus is Melchizedek. Because there is no other. Because there's only one in this highly exclusive priesthood. There's only one who can do this. There's only one who's eternal. Only one who's permanent. Only one who is inviolable. Non-transferable. That, that means you can't get saved through anybody else. No Pope can save you. No priest can stand before you. No brother or sister or mother or father can stand between you and God and secure your salvation. Nobody can do it but Jesus. His priesthood is non-transferable. There is one God, 1 Timothy 2.5, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Only one. Time.com told the story, I don't know if you've been following this at all, I've mentioned the Pope a couple of times, in Chile and Peru, Pope Francis now is back from his apology tour. In Chile especially, he was having to apologize to sexual abuse victims of pedophile priests. Because this pedophilia among the priesthood has continued and has been, as we've seen now over the years, covered up. In the Catholic Church, priests who who committed acts of atrocity against children and then having to be removed from their priesthood, but not removed, moved to another diocese somewhere else to continue to perpetuate the same thing. And this has gone on and on. And so Francis goes to Chile and there's been a, a big upheaval in Chile over specifically a priest higher up who was doing this. But he had to apologize, not because of what the priest did, but he apologized, quote, for insisting that victims show proof to be believed. Saying that he realized it was a slap in the face to victims that he never intended. But, at the same time, Francis doubled down on defending a Chilean bishop accused by victims of covering up for the country's most notorious pedophile priest, and he repeated that anyone who makes such accusations without providing evidence is guilty of slander. So I don't know if you're following here, but but apparently the Pope is not infallible. The Pope is making these apologies and and in Catholicism, and I'm not trying to rag on Catholicism, but I'm just trying to speak truthfully that we have an arm of Christianity so-called that is spinning out priests and popes one after the other after the other to stand between people and God when the reality is there is only one and His name is Jesus. There is just one. No other way to get to heaven. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That must be made clear. Because if we water water that down or wash it away, people will miss the one path to heaven. People will go to hell believing there were multiple ways to get to God. 
Part of our gospel message in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is it. He is your only hope. Well, that's hard. People don't like that. It gets me into arguments. People get upset. I understand. But it's the only truth. I mean, it's like saying I have a shot that will cure your cancer if you take it. But this is the only one that will do it. Well, I don't want that one. I'd like this one over here. Well, then you're not going to be cured. It's that simple. I have a lifesaver. You're drowning in the water. I will throw it around you, but it's the only way I can get you to the ship. Well, I don't want a lifesaver. Please send me a helicopter. Well, you're going to drown. There is only one way. One perfect intercessor, Jesus, who is inviolable, that is non-transferable. And listen to this, verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Now remember, remember, this is the high priest that he already described as very human, as completely able to understand, as completely empathetic, because he went through everything we have. But now listen, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those priests, those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, But the word of the oath, what we talked about Sunday, the promise based in the oath, the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. What do you mean he's made perfect forever? Perfect in his priesthood. Absolutely complete in the consecration of his royal high priestly office of the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood is fundamentally Better than the priesthood of all the Levitical order. Better than the priesthood of Aaron and Phineas and Zadok. Better than the priesthood clearly in the New Testament of Annas and Caiaphas and others. Fundamentally a better priesthood. And here's where we come down to why. One more unique aspect of this high priest that puts him absolutely in a class all by himself. I said he's inviolable. The second aspect of this intercessor, listen, write this down. If you didn't write anything down, write this on your hand. Get this down. Remember this. He doesn't just make intercession. He is intercession. He is the intercession in and of Himself. Chapter 8, verse 1, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. Skip down to verse 6. But now He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant on which has been enacted better promises. He is not just the intercessor, but the intercession itself. What I mean by that is this. He's seated. He's not pacing the courtroom. This this is this is a misunderstanding I think we have. In Christianity, when we talk about the intercession of Jesus, that he's up there arguing our case. 
advocating for us as a defense attorney before God. Oh, Les didn't mean what he said. He really didn't. Here's what, well, maybe he did, but I'm going to cover for him. You know, I got him. It's not what he's doing. He's not pleading our case before a holy bench. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the intercession. His invocations, if you will, are His injuries. His mediation are His mutilations. His petitions are His pierced hands and feet. When Jesus ascended to the heavens and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, when God said, I have sworn you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus sat down bearing proof that you and I have been washed clean and not another word need be said. He is the intercession. And I saw, Revelation 5, 6, between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. God sees that lamb and He says, forgiven, justified, righteous, peace. Now, I said I would prove to you that Melchizedek actually was Jesus on the scene there with Abraham back in Genesis 14. I'll do it right now. It was one of the most intense stats of His public ministry. An argument that was raging between the Pharisees and Jesus. And the Pharisees were ascribing His works, His miracles, and His words to the devil. They said in John 8.52, Now we know that you have a demon... Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste of death? Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham, who died. I am greater, and don't call me Shirley. He could have said, he didn't. (laughs) The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be, they say. And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. If I say I do not know Him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. When did Abraham ever see Jesus? Only one possibility in the person of Melchizedek. He saw my day. He was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And six months later, he was on the cross. Three days after that, Resurrected. Forty days again after that, He ascended back into the heavens where He was sworn in, where the Father said, The Lord has sworn will not change His mind. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we see Him. This, this royal priest. In fact, it's what I like most about Psalm 110. It's where we see Him. I see Him there when all is said and done 
when the dust settles over the valley of Megiddo, when the work is finished, when He is done shattering kings and, and chief men over a broad plain, in the day of His wrath, as He concludes His judgment among the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat, I see Him. Verse 7 of Psalm 110. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Can you just imagine for a moment Jesus, our great high priest, and the absolute peace having accomplished all to see Jesus by the brook. And He bends over and He just takes a drink. And in that moment, it reminds me that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He is the great royal priest. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bless Your name. We bow before You as holy God. And we recognize ourselves as lesser who are here honoring the greater Jesus Christ, our High Priest and our King. We thank You for the explanation, Lord, in Your Word, and it is all of Your Word, that this order of Melchizedek is so important to know and understand. Because it describes so beautifully and so profoundly the rule and the priesthood of Jesus. And it brings us to the point of seeing Him as the intercession. Lord Jesus, tonight, we just pray, hear our prayers. Hear our hearts. See with Your perfect eyes our struggles, our sorrows, our needs, our joys. Look upon those who tonight are soaring in their faith and those who are crawling, just barely getting by. Would You, Lord Jesus, look upon all of us and be our intercession. We love You, Lord, and we worship You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand and worship Him.